it wasn't going to be down to fitness. I think it was always going to be down to just all of the other factors that come into play in a hundred miler, nutrition, mental training, um, hydration, and those are almost more important in a hundred miler than in other ultras because all of those factors, you just have to have so much control throughout the entire race because any mistake you make early on is going to come and haunt you later. And I think so many things can go wrong because you're just out there for such a long time and you have to do everything right for such a long time that it's really hard. Welcome to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we are on a mission to create a better world, which actually, you're the perfect guest for this, EO. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is we share stories of people looking, finding, and living their purpose because we believe that we are all here to share our unique gifts. And to reveal those gifts sometimes in our life, um, it's just our trajectory takes a turn that was not in the original plan. And our guest today is most certainly living her purpose one step at a time. EO Wang is one of the top ultra runners in the sport today. And this very unexpected career was first sparked when watching the Boston Marathon many years ago. At the time, she was on a clear trajectory into the world of biotech and becoming a sponsored professional runner is pretty much the opposite of that. But as I mentioned, my friends, that many times is how purpose comes into your life. So EO, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yeah, and this has been a long time coming. We had been in touch in the fall. Uh, we were going to be coming up for the North Face Challenge. And uh, that never happened because as life takes very unexpected turns, there was some devastating fires that prevented that race from happening. So and, and I remember saying like, all right, well, let's connect in April. And then boom, like, here we are. It's crazy. <laughs> Time flies. It's just, it's just crazy. So you have covered your backstory so beautifully and so comprehensive through a couple of podcasts that I've listened. And I want to direct our listeners to that because I don't want to keep rehashing the same story um, because your story is super interesting, but I want to dive into some some other things during our conversation. So you guys can listen to the Billy Yang podcast, um, where you really go into detail about this epic world tour that you had, which mm -hmm. we're going to touch upon as well. And then also on Mario um, Ferilio's podcast, The Morning Shakeout. We want to touch a little bit on the backstory because we want to talk about, you know, here you are at MIT living in Boston on this trajectory, you're doing internships with biotech companies and you watch the Boston Marathon and something gets sparked within you. And, and perhaps you can tell us better than I can put words into your mouth, but perhaps you weren't thinking like, I want to be a professional runner, but something happened that day. It did. So I was spectating the Boston Marathon as every college student in Boston does on Patriots Day because there's no school, it's a holiday, and the race itself runs past um, several iconic Boston schools where all of the students will gather along the course and party, basically. <laughs> and because when I was going to school there, the marathon still started at 9 a.m. in the morning. It meant that you could start partying at you know 11 a.m. in the morning when the runners started coming into Kenmore Square. Um, so it was just a very uh, fun activity. And I knew practically nothing about running when I went to college. Um, I swam for a few years um, in middle school and high school, but didn't play any other sports. And actually, I thought I always thought I was a terrible runner because the mile was the hardest thing I <laughs> felt like I had to do in high school. I mean, classes are no problem, <laughs> tests are no problem, but the mile was just this awful beast. <laughs> yeah, I heard you say once that physical education was like the hardest. It was the hardest class for me to get an A in because I was not good at, you know, the running or the push-ups or the sit-ups. Um, so I saw just these thousands of runners. I think it was a very hot year. So everyone was totally soaked in sweat and just suffering their way through Kenmore Square. But they also looked like they felt as though they'd accomplished something great. And I thought, wow, this is 
such a difficult physical achievement and all of these people decided that they wanted to do it and that they had the grit and the determination to do it. I mean, there's something to be learned from undertaking that challenge. And so it really inspired me to run. And I was very specific. I wanted to run the Boston Marathon (laughs) Um, because of the whole atmosphere surrounding it too. So the whole city and all of the communities around along the way just really embrace this event and they support all the runners and they just come out in their thousands to see all these people running by. And I thought, I want to participate in that. Yeah, They're it's hard. Just, it's kind of, I mean, I think it would be hard not to catch some kind of, yeah. of bug. There's yeah, so that, much that, that vibe, the collective just, energy yeah. around yeah. it. Along the whole stretch, it's just not pockets. Like some races, yeah. you get to some pockets, so there's people. Boston just has that throughout the whole 26.2 yeah. miles. And I think the fact that it is a holiday in the city, and you know, New that's just what everybody does on right. New Patriot's Day. Love their holidays. <laughs> they Boston. love their holidays. <laughs> the Red Sox are opening, like everything yeah. is yeah, happening. Yeah, there's a big baseball game mm-hmm. going on. Um, everyone's just having a great time. Although you have described yourself, even though you swam in high school, you described yourself as a child as being very unathletic, right? But you are no slouch, right? You're at MIT. I mean, you know how to put your focus on something and get it done. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really translatable to the athletic world, but it's just a different feel. It's not in, it's not the brain feel. It's like you're going to be moving into like physical sensation. And at the time, were you even running? No. Not at all. <laughs> I had no concept of the levels of physical discomfort that I was about to get myself oh, into. And 26 po- Did you have any idea what 26 miles was? Like- I think I'd driven 26 <laughs> miles. <laughs> and then you choose. And even that might be a chore sometimes. And you went right to the marathon going. distance. I, so I was at least a little bit thoughtful about it. And I, so I knew nothing about running. So I went home and I Googled how to run a marathon or how to train for a marathon. Thank God for Google, man. And I started reading, you know, um, some literature online. I think there were some great websites where you could find, like, the beginner's marathon training plan. And they always recommend, you know, you do a 5K, a 10K, a half marathon. And I, I just thought that was a logical place to start is, okay, let's see if I can run a 5K first. Um, and then I think I literally followed a couch to 5k program for a while until I could run a 5k without stopping just on my own like three miles um and then I did do I think one of those um race for the cure 5ks you know the the great thing about running in New England is that during the racing season there are so many local events to choose from that you're really spoiled for choice in terms of, oh, I can do a 5K, you know, every weekend if I wanted to. And there's some, like, sick runners in Boston. So mm-hmm. you're just in a, you're, like, in a hub yeah. of, of the, the running community living in Boston. Yes. So Boston has, obviously, a lot of great collegiate runners um, with all the schools there. But um, everybody in Boston respects the Boston Marathon, and so there's tons of people who run it every single year, and you'll see them in the middle of winter out training on the course. And actually, the city of Boston keeps um, the paths around the Charles River plowed and shoveled so that people can train through the winter for the marathon. And then no matter how horrible the street conditions are elsewhere in the city, they plow and salt like the last half of the Boston Marathon course um, leading into the city. So the the carriage road, I don't know if you know about it, but it's always clear in the winter so that people can train on it. And sometimes that's the only place that's clear to run on. Because New Englanders are, and we we grew up in New England, New England, New Englanders are so hardcore, right? Like anything. It's really hardcore. I feel like I've gotten so soft since moving to California because, you know, you and I are all wearing our puffy coats and it's 50 degrees out it's, or something like because that. Because it's legit cold out, you know. It's legitimately, and, and the just, sun's not shining. I just keep thinking it's, you know, I would go out running when it was below freezing and sleeting out and there's just no question, like, right. I'm going out for a run. And now, since I've moved to California, after living here for 10 years, it's kind of like, uh... 
it's cloudy. Maybe I'll wait. <laughs> As we sit in front of this light that EO has in her house to um, help us feel a little bit better about the cloudy day. I love it. So you go, so the, so you, you did some 5Ks and things like that, and then you chose the Cape Cod Marathon, which BJ and I have both run, mm-hmm. and that is relentless from it's like tough. 11 to 22 is like relentless yeah. hills. Yeah. The hills, yeah. I sure. think I didn't know anything about it going in, which is a good thing because I'm not sure I would have it's a tough gone course. through with running it No, if I knew how hard the course was. So there was a little bit of beauty in my naivete because I had no concept of how difficult it might be to run under 340, which at the time was my qualifying standard for Boston, and to do it on the Cape Cod course. Like, I just had no idea. I was like, of course I can run under 340. And yeah, I'll do it at the Cape Cod Marathon because it's, you know, three months from now. <laughs> and you did. You, you mean you came well under. You did a 333 yes. and qualified for Boston. Beach actually. That was my first. That was my second marathon ever and qualified, yeah. for, qualified Boston for Boston as well. Awesome. But you almost like, you came over that finish line and you were like, might have been the that last. That was time. hard. The, yeah. You come along, you take that left to go mm-hmm. back to the finish. You're going mm-hmm. basically uphill. It's like a false flat going uphill yeah. from what I remember. I and just, I was training in Boulder. So I was we flew back from Boulder mm-hmm. elevation to come down and, and run that. So I can't imagine if I would have what I would have done if I trained at sea level to run at sea level. But it is a relenting course. So th- what year was that that you do you remember? I think Cape that Con? was two thousand five or six. Yeah. Okay. I think it was two thousand based on my research. Yeah. I think it was two thousand five that you ran that. And then Back in the day, you could mm-hmm. actually still sign up for the Boston Marathon. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you ran Boston. Because I ran it, I think Cape Cod was in October. Yep. And then Boston would have been that April. So you could still sign up um, in the fall, late fall, winter. You know, it, it didn't get to this crazy registration opens and it fills up in 20 seconds kind of level yet. You could still just sign up um, a few months before the race. Yeah, so you ended up running Boston in 2006 and caught some kind of marathon bug because we're going to fast forward a little bit because you end up at the at the um, qualifying for the 2012 Olympic trials. And what I want to dial in and get into some of the details is um, you ran Napa mm-hmm. and you had like a PR, I think you maybe did like a 246-ish. Yeah. And, um, but didn't, but didn't right. qualify. 246, 45 or something uh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> something 45 like that. seconds over the standard. <laughs> 45 the seconds over. Yeah. But then you go to grandma's, which is not that far. And you have another PR, which mm-hmm. qualifies you from 2012. But how do you go from Napa getting a PR? You, you, obviously you didn't, you were 45 seconds over, but then you go to grandma's like, did you tweak anything in your training? I know we're talking, you know, six-ish years ago, but what do you remember doing between that? Like, how do you achieve two PRs at the marathon yeah. distance? So I think that um, my training had been extremely solid leading into Napa, and my coach at the time and I both thought that my fitness level was sub at sub-246, but... That day at Napa, the weather conditions were really poor. It was very stormy. We had a big headwind for most of the race. And Napa's still a relatively small field. And so I ran by myself most of the day. There was you know, no one to work with. Um, so I think between Napa and Grandma's, we didn't really tweak anything in training. It was mostly about recovering as quickly as possible after Napa and then just almost maintaining the fitness that I had leading into Napa. And then our goal going into Grandma's was just to take the fitness that I already had and hope for a better weather day and more people to run with to make that standard. And I think the result from Grandma's was kind of surprising even to me, but I think some of the factors that led to me being able to run um, another PR were it was beautiful weather. There was no wind. Um, The course at Grandma's is also point to point, which I really like point to point courses because you feel like you're achieving something. (laughs) You're not just going in a big giant circle. Yeah. 
And then I also had a lot more people to run with because grandmas, you know, had a whole sort of sub-elite program to support up-and-coming runners who are aiming for the standard. And so during grandmas, I ended up running with two guys for pretty much the entire race. And so I had people to work off of, and there, it was just much easier to maintain the pace. And I also think, you know, races, you'll always have those just those special days where everything comes together and you can knock your expectations out of the park. And that's what we keep chasing, right? Yeah. yeah I, think, I think if you had gotten caught up in that 246.45, if you had like stewed yeah. in that moment yeah. and just set yourself back versus let's shift gears, let's see what's next. And I think that's a key component for athletes to keep that momentum moving forward. Like, you know, in your mind, you could either shift and, and stay in that lack, mm-hmm. like, oh, I missed it do I even have it? Or I know I have it. I just need to give it another go. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that I was definitely disappointed that I didn't run under 246, but there were also so many things to celebrate about that race. Like I felt like I had good fueling. I didn't feel like I hit the wall. I felt like I had good pacing, but it was just, you know, with the wind and rain and, lack of people to run with I couldn't run quite as fast as I wanted to but there were still all of these great things that mm-hmm. happened around the race um, and you know really 24600 that's kind of an arbitrary standard in some ways it's set there by you know the um, USATF as you can get into the trials and it's just a tool to say this is a goal to reach for um, but really your personal goal is just that you want to try to have the best races that you can to always keep improving yourself as an athlete. So whatever you use as a metric to measure that um, can be whatever you want it to be, right? If I say in my head, I want to run under 246, maybe somebody else just says, you know, I want to beat my brother, whatever. (laughs) Right. Something, something <laughs> to keep you, really to keep you honest out there, mm-hmm. right? Because there's so many, there's so many opportunities to back off because you know, you back off, that pain's going to subside. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess it goes down to like, what's your why? Some people would say, what's your why? Um, I'm assuming too, between going into grandma's, like the, your mental state was, well, I think it's a fine line because I'm thinking about like, your mental state might have been like, okay, this, like I've got the fitness, so you had the confidence, like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it because you, you were feeling like it was the external um, factors that were really holding you back in Napa. But how do you allow that? How do you not allow that kind of that drive of like, okay, I'm gonna do it here, or I'm gonna keep moving forward, and not turn that into pressure, like that sometimes can paralyze you. At the time actually being a non-professional runner helped a lot because the expectations and the pressure are very different when you're an amateur, you're unsponsored, and you're just doing it for yourself, really, versus having sponsors and then there's external expectations in that context. So I look back fondly at that time. Of being unsponsored? Yeah, being unsponsored because you can really... It's up to you what you want to do and what your goals are. And I, at the time, didn't really think, oh, my goal is one day to be sponsored because I was aware enough that I was very far from what a professional marathoner's times would need to be. Um, So I think it's really about having a level of self-confidence and just sort of knowing why you're doing this and appreciating, you know, running is a gift. And I love running for the running and I love training because I like the process. And it's not always about the, the, you know, precise result of this race has to turn out this way. Um, Because you can have the expectation of, I want to do well at this race. And, you know, my mindset has changed over time after 
many race experiences. And when I first started racing, it was very, it would be very time oriented. Like I want to run 1.30 and a half today, or I want to run a three hour marathon or a sub three hour marathon. And I think nowadays I don't set standards like that for myself going into the race because it is really hard if you say I want to run 250.00 and then you run 250.15 like is that a failure no not really you still ran a freaking great time um and so I think nowadays my expectations and mindset going into a race is really I want to feel like I did the best I could possibly do under the conditions of the day. So there might be bad weather and my time might be a bit slower than it was in years past, or I might have been sick the week leading up to it and therefore that's going to affect my result. But at the end of the day, the question is, did I do the best I possibly could under the conditions I was given, you know, or did I, um, Crater. (laughs) No cratering. (laughs) Stay strong. Stay strong out there. No matter what's happening. (laughs) So you did qualify for the 2012 Olympic trials and you went to the Olympic trials, but you didn't finish the Olympic trials because you had a a high hamstring injury. Mm -hmm. And so, and, but after qualifying for the Olympic trials, did sponsors approach you? Like, did you have more pressure going into the Olympic trials, more of that external pressure? A little bit. So I started running for a local running club team um, that was, at the time, the ASICS Aggies. I think they were founded in um, San Luis Obispo out of Cal Poly, and it was... um, a high performance training group, but really of all levels, but they did have sort of a, a small sponsorship program for some of the athletes that had qualified for the Olympic trials or were going to qualify for the Olympic trials. But it was, it's, it was still not like a true elite athlete sponsorship. It was a club team. Um, but there, you know, there were more expectations, like we want you to run certain races because there's team results, so you could be part of a scoring team, and they sent us, you know, great gear to for everyone that had qualified for the trials, and so there was some gear and some monetary support that came from being a part of this team, um, and I think at that point, I felt you know, a little bit more legit. (laughs) (laughs) Like someone else believes enough in my ability that they'll support me with gear and, and with a little bit of monetary support. But you know, the, the money in running is very small, the amount and hard to come by. And so, you know, I was still working, um, full-time jobs at the time and just kind of training, um, really, what would you call a weekend warrior stuff? <laughs> For the Olympic trials. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, it, I'm really grateful that after moving to California, um, I actually got this opportunity to work, start working at a school, which is something that I'd never considered, but I needed a job. You know, I couldn't just run all the time and I didn't, I was not really interested in working in biotech anymore. And you had this nice little piece of paper from MIT. Yeah, yeah. It's like (laughs) along comes this opportunity to um, help out at a school and working in math and science, which is you know, science is my background, and it worked out really well because this, there are a lot of, um, I've, at least I feel like I know a lot of runners who are also teachers yeah. <laughs> um, because the schedule can be pretty good for, mm-hmm. you, know, you have holidays, um, you often don't have to work on weekends, but sometimes you do. <laughs> and then summer vacation, right? And there's <laughs> summer break, um, although my school had a schedule that was year-round, so we didn't really have summer break, but we had big, you know, chunks of time off throughout the year. Having a real job helped unload a lot of expectation around the running, right? Because you can't just sit at home and think about running all the time. You have something else to distract your own mind away from maybe you had a bad run in the morning, but you still have, you know, a classroom full of kids that you need to go and serve and you can't, you just can't dwell on the things that go bad. And then I think the things that go 
well, um, it, you at least have coworkers and like other people that can celebrate those achievements with you, even if they aren't in the sport of running. It's like, I, I derived a lot of satisfaction from talking about running to people who aren't necessarily runners or who don't know about running. Um, and I think that that really helped me handle, you know, the external or internal pressures of performing at races and in training. Because you had this, you had all these different facets to your life. Mm -hmm. And when we put so much focus sometimes on, as we were building our business, for example, and we're putting so much on like, this has got to produce for, like, we need to pay our bills. Like this. And it was when we stepped away and we just said, you know what, like this podcast and this business is going to be what it is. And let's stay in the heart and let's stay in the love of why we, um, started this and why we risked everything for it. And like, just stay in that love of it. And that's when things started to expand. And what's the bigger purpose? You know, the bigger purpose being to create a better world, to share stories like yours, that people don't have to feel alone, that they don't have to feel stuck, that, um, you know, you just never know when your life's purpose is going to just fall down right in front of you, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes it's inconvenient and it's <laughs> and it's like not a part of the plan and it seems it can weird. be messy. <laughs> it can be super messy. And that's what I love about it is that, um, it's, we can take this, uh, perspective like, oh, well they, oh, Ia's got it. So she's got it made, you know, she's winning races, she's a professional runner, but it took many, many steps. And it started with a couch to 5k <laughs> that we all are in the hustle, right? And yeah. we all, you, you pay your dues. And, and I just think you just never know when those opportunities are going to occur because, I signed my first sponsorship contract when I was 31 years old. Like, who does that as a professional athlete? Um, that's like over the hill in most yeah, <laughs> sports like and activities. Retirement. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, don't never give up on your dreams, and you just never quite know when those opportunities will occur. And you just have to say yes. Mm-hmm. Because when someone offers to take you on a trip around the world, like it's really inconvenient, <laughs> but also really awesome, and you can't say no to that. You, yeah. you look at the higher purpose. You just <laughs> say yes is something we can speak to so well. It's, or at least I can, because I've always had resistance or like all our like structured walls. Like this is who I am, and this is yeah. what I do. But when yeah. you start saying yes, you start to creep on the other side. It's so scary to say and yes. It's so scary. It can be so scary. You lose your identity. You lose who you think, who you believe you are. Well, and I think that that's you know, as a yogi, you know, that's really the premise of becoming who we were always meant to be. Is we have to be willing to let go of who we think we are. Yep. Like you had to let go of EO, the biotech, like on this trajectory, right? You're going to work in a research lab and, and, um, and let's switch gears into this world tour because you had this amazing opportunity. And if anybody looks at her ultra signup, um, results, which I've been stalking, there's like a gap in 2018. And that's because you are running, literally running around the world. You had an amazing experience and you go really deep into this on that podcast with Billy Yang, which I love. And so you guys... All of our listeners, you need to go listen to that one as well. But that was a very impactful trip for you. So just give our listeners a little bit of like, what, why were you able to travel the world? What, how does somebody do this? Um, so my husband and I were hired as teachers um, by a family who I had met through the school that I was working at at the time. So I was teaching eighth grade, and these students came through my class and their parents wanted to take a trip around the world together as a family um, before their kids got, you know, to college and everything. It's so beautiful, so amazing. And they wanted the kids to still have their academic year, and so they asked myself if we would want to go with them. And it was a full school year, so August to June, and we traveled through 30 countries, and we did a lot of academics when we could along the way and also had a lot of crazy experiences. I think that on top of the experiences that we had in each country, you know, doing visiting, some of the more touristy type of things, it also was 
an unbelievable experience as a teacher because, you know, I'll always remember doing chemistry labs on the back of a boat in the Galapagos or like in just these crazy places having to sort of um, be very flexible and be able to problem solve when conditions might not be right. I mean, what do you do when you're in Namibia for four days and you have no connectivity and no electricity? (laughs) I love that. And how do you, how do you roll with the conditions that, you know, that you're, that you're given? And I think that that translates directly to sport and racing and training Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. of that, you know, whether it's showing up in our body, the circumstances in our body or the circumstances on race day. And so it, it, um, you know, you have a very academic background. Um, and like BJ was saying, sometimes we get, we can get really tunnel vision as we're following the intellect, but you were forced to learn a flexibility. Oh yes. There was a lot of flexibility to be learned. (laughs) And I think, um, that's one of the facets of the trip that I'm really grateful for is that it forced me to be, to let go of this is my schedule. What's my schedule tomorrow? What's my schedule a week from now? Because there were days that we didn't know what country we were going to be in tomorrow morning. And you're just like, okay, just tell me what time to be in the lobby of the hotel. I'll be there, (laughs) packed, ready to go. (laughs) And a trust. There's a level of trust there as well. We had to let go of the control that we always like to exert in our life. You know, when Sean and I travel, it's everything is, we know everything all of the information involved, what the schedule is going to be, where we're going to be, you know, all the logistical things we handle. And on this trip, we didn't handle any of the logistics. And you think, oh, that's going to be such a great time. Like, but it's, it's actually quite stressful at first because you don't know where your luggage is going or, you know, you can't say, I want to leave at this time tomorrow. You just have to leave at the time that is designated. So you had that adjustment period. Oh, we had a big adjustment period at the start of the trip. So do you, do you float back and forth? So now that you, um, it seems like you were scheduled, then you, then you're released the schedule now. How do you, how is your travel plans now? Like, what is it? What does that I look think like? Now I'm definitely a lot less structured in my travel plans than I used to be. Um, When Sean and I did trips pre-world trip, I would make all these spreadsheets. (laughs) I.e. the academic background. (laughs) Be like, day one, day two, day three, day four. And I would literally schedule activities for like, you know, 8 a.m. on day one (laughs) before having stepped foot in the country. And I would look up like all of the restaurants and coffee shops and places that we were going to stop. And, you know, I, I think the, the last time I did something on that scale was when we went to New Zealand for two weeks and I had a schedule for every single day. <laughs> and it would, it would be like run from seven to eight 30, leave hotel at nine. So what happens drive from nine to noon? <laughs> and I, you know what? I think there's people who are listening who are like, uh, I've got, so what's wrong with that? I've got spreadsheets. Oh yeah. And it was printed out in a binder in our rental car. So I'd be like flipping through the binder. Oh my God, it's 11. Drive faster. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and, and you know, it's so funny because that really, that really is connected to our hard wiring as humans to feel safe and to feel yeah. comfortable. And if yeah. you've got this binder of exactly how your vacation mm-hmm. um, is going to go, then there's a part of you that's like, okay, I feel better about going to this foreign country. Yeah. I feel okay. scary place of New Zealand. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the super scary Where they New definitely Zealanders. don't speak English at all. <laughs> and so all of that gets thrown. See, this is so beautiful because like you said, sometimes opportunities just, just come and they fall into your lap. And there was such a bigger purpose to this world tour. I mean, what a gift, right? Mm-hmm. That you guys get to do this and, and that you get to connect with this family and be a part of these, um, these kids, their education, Yeah. but that you're learning. One of the biggest things that I, I think is, is such a hindrance for athletes is letting go. Is letting go. Detachment. Oh, yes. It's, it's massive. Um, and I know that this trip had a really big impact because you weren't just in the, you know, the, 
the first world section of the third world countries that you were also seeing some things behind the scene and, and the guides were taking you. And so um, what were some Im things that are still with you, like the impact? I think the impact really came in waves after the trip. There was the sort of post-trip elation period of like, oh my God, look at all these amazing photos we took and we saw, you know, all of these wonders of the world and met all these cool people. And then a few weeks later, there was more of an existential crisis mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. where we started processing, okay, we saw all this poverty, environmental degradation, um, economic inequality, um, overpopulation, like these are such huge problems. And when you see it on such a scale and in so many places, it feels overwhelming to process. You know, you're experiencing right? it like on a visceral You're like, level. okay, this is what I saw in Peru and Ecuador and Myanmar. Um, and the, the problems just feel overwhelming to you as a singular person because we're all aware of you know, climate change or um, glaciers melting and desertification from overgrazing and habitat loss and extinctions. Um, but to actually go around the world and see it happening and see it on such a huge scale it makes you pretty depressed about the state of life on planet Earth. And it can make you feel like helpless. Like It does. It makes you feel really helpless because I will remember moments like getting out of the airplane at an airport in Peru and seeing, you know, fields of plastic trash as we're, we are driving in this air conditioned minivan on our way to some beach hotel and we're passing through so much poverty and destruction from mining and also the level of uh, plastic trash, like acres of plastic trash um and then you pull into you know the the fancy resort where all the westerners go and you're like there's such a disconnect between what's going on here in my hotel in this little corner of the beach versus you know the two hours that we just drove that like wh what are we doing <laughs> yeah that's a big question like, what are we what are we doing and, and your mind must be like processing like oh my how are they even going to start Right, right. To, re to, right. to come to, a, to yeah. find a resolution to this problem. Because we also met, especially in Africa, a lot of um, NGOs or, you know, these safari lodges that are trying to help the local communities. And then talking to sort of the, the liaison person who's usually a local who grew up there, got educated, and then came back to either work for the Safari Lodge or to work for an NGO to, um, or a nonprofit to help their community. They just talk about how there's still a large disconnect between people in developed countries who think, you know, we have all this money and all these resources, let's just toss it over to Sub-Saharan Africa and surely good things will happen. And then they don't take the time to really understand the community or how to, you know, help, quote unquote. Um, and their intentions are often on a very short time frame. And so they make no long-term lasting impact. And they can actually be detrimental to the community to suddenly have an influx of money or resources. Um, so I think it was a little bit disheartening at times to see how, you know, all, all of these efforts to fight poverty or to fight childhood illnesses um, don't necessarily lead to results. Um, but we also saw a lot of stories of hope and change to where, you know, there's a, a lodge in Tanzania that's working very closely with its local community to protect habitat for animals so that... Um, the safari experience will benefit the local community. 
and therefore the community starts to have a stake in protecting the habitat and the animals versus someone coming in and just saying, oh, you can't graze your goats on this land because it's protected for the elephants. And then the people, they have to have a way of surviving, right? They're, they're not grazing goats on the land because they want to be malicious and they want to actively destroy the land. They're just trying to survive. Um, and so if a foreigner comes in and tells them what they can or cannot do, it doesn't jive, right? It's never going to work. And you only cause resentment, which leads to things like poaching and all sorts of other problems. So it, it, I learned a lot about how one should and should not interact with local communities if, if there's something that you want to change, Right, even in our, and, and that's a lesson that you can take to your communities at home too, right? We have, even in Marin, problems of poverty, economic inequality, lack of education or access to resources. Um, and so I think I was inspired at the end to do better in my own life, even, even though I feel like on the grand scheme of things, I'm such a small part of it that um, it just takes individual people and individual actions and individual people to care. I, my hope is that more people will have an opportunity to travel and have an, an experience. It doesn't have to be, you know, I know that very few people will have such an opportunity to travel on such a scale that um, we did. But even if you go to a place like Costa Rica, for example, there's the beautiful touristy, you know, ecotourism side of Costa Rica. And then there's also the um, true communities, what they're actually, how the people are actually living side. And I think one of the things that really benefited us on our trip is our time away from the curated uh, look at the country and most of that we got through just leaving our hotel and going for a run because then you probably go to a place that your guide would not recommend that you go <laughs> but then you actually get to see what's happening and how people live and what they do and in the, for the most part everyone was really kind even though they thought we were crazy <laughs> right. right because why you're like probably in your you know you're or like wearing you know our bright neon right. colored shorts and tank tops and they're like trying to walk to the river to get their water supply for the day <laughs> I think you brought up such an incredible like concept I guess it's you know, we want to we want to save the elephants, and we want to do all these things to you know. Nobody wants to see anybody suffer in this world because our essence, I think, is as human beings, is to connect and to care for one another. Mm -hmm. But that there are efforts being made that are to the detriment of these smaller indigenous communities, and so it's I think it's important to understand these communities and that these people mat they matter, just like you matter. They mm -hmm. matter, and that they're life living amongst acres of trash is what they are accustomed to. Right. And how is it that we can work to support them and the bigger mm -hmm. picture? I think one of the things is, you know, sometimes we have just a misguided understanding of what's going on because you think, oh, how can these people live in acres of trash? But one of the interesting things that I learned because I too was like, how can they live with acres of trash? Is that a lot of these communities are used to having things made out of organic materials, right? They make things out of wood or plant materials or animal hide or things that they could just toss and didn't have to specially dispose of. So there's no concept in their community or in their culture of trash that never goes away, right? It's like, oh, you know, we didn't, like our house is falling down, we're gonna build a new house, but our old house is going to just biodegrade over time because it's made out of wood and plant materials and palm fronds. And then suddenly now they're being given, you know, plastic bags and, clothes made out of synthetic material or even things like metal cans and like glass. I mean, they have no idea that 
it doesn't just biodegrade into the earth. And so there's no concept of recycling. Well, there's a concept of recycling in different ways, but they just don't know that you can't throw a plastic bag out out your door and, and it just goes away <laughs> and that yes it will yeah. eventually become yeah. part of the uh, part of the earth yeah. as opposed uh, to like this community that we drove through in peru like we were asking our guides you know why do they leave the trash everywhere and our guide was like well first of all you know plastic is pretty new in terms of how long it's been around this community and people don't understand Mm -hmm. how to dispose of it or that it doesn't just go away and also there's never been a concept of trash collection right like having the infrastructure of someone driving by your house once a week and taking away your trash these are just things that we take for granted you know, we have dumpsters, we know it will get emptied, or we give the trash to the trash man and it goes away. Right. <laughs> so we've, we've, evolved, we've evolved to this point, and we should, this is the very point of it, we should be the teachers to help the rest of the world catch up to what we've discovered. But we, we live in this this delusion, like, it, like you said, it goes away, and so... But the earth still takes the burden. Mm -hmm. She's still Mm -hmm. taking the burden. Whether it's me looking out in this amazing, you know, town in California and just seeing these houses and these nicely contained dumpsters. Yeah. But where does it all go? Yeah, the picture (laughs) is just a little... The earth is still taking the brunt. And I think that... We're we're three trash days and three toilet flushes away from total mayhem. You know, you had said, um, you know, you're just one person. And I, but I think that I've been looking at this um, because there's so much contrast in the world, right? Mm-hmm. That you're seeing this poverty and you're seeing, you know, illness and, you know, as spending yeah. some time in India and Guatemala, you know, you're seeing people on the streets literally dying. Yep. And then life is just going on around them. And then you've got these amazing stories of hope and inspiration and where there really is some beautiful, sustainable change. So we mm-hmm. live in this contrast, which is, it's, um, it's a hard thing to digest. And so I've, um, as I spend many time, many hours on the trail by myself, I've really been digesting this as of late. And I see it as like, we're a part of this meta system, which has an intelligence that's, um, you know, a part of me but that I can't fully understand through my own intellect and that I'm just a subsystem of that. And so I might be really small in the grand scheme of that meta system, but what I do within my own subsystem is not only the only thing that I can control, but I can have my own impact. And that if we all just kind of say, well, I can have my own impact, whatever it is that, that fills our heart, whatever it is that we're called to, that's why I think it's so important, this whole idea of purpose and how that creates a better world is if we can really just stay finely tuned within our subsystem and do the best that we can and notice that when we're going to buy, you know, cases and cases of plastic and and realizing that the trash doesn't just go away, you know, and just becoming a little bit more awake, that we will collectively have an impact mm-hmm. that is for the better of all. Yes. And I think I learned a lot about how to be a good human on this trip as well. Um, You know, there are these indigenous communities that are so deeply connected to each other and to, you know, their family, to their fellow villagers. Um, And in our more modern society, we are becoming increasingly disconnected from real humans. And so I think after the trip, I was like, wow, I really need to make sure that I connect with people in real life on a deeper basis um, because as we connect more electronically, I think we connect less in real life. Yeah, and that's why I love like these interviews, like sitting in, you know, you welcoming us into your home and sitting here and having this conversation where we're we're connecting within this like this energy we're all sharing energy mm-hmm. here in your home and um and i 
think that there's a quality about that human connection that we can now share through this amazing medium across the globe. Um, I feel so, so grateful for that. And um, so I want to, I want to switch gears. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about. What are we up here for? Let's talk about. <laughs> yeah. So you, um, you, fast forward, fast forward. Lots of details and amazing things in between. Become an ultra runner, and um, you, have, you know, were successful on the fifty k distance. I think you did. You, I think you won your first. Did you win your first fifty k? Uh, well, yes. I know you won your first fifty yeah. miler. Yeah. Which was Lake Sonoma in twenty sixteen your goal being just to finish it. And that's why we're up here right now is because we're, um, I am, um, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'm racing the Lake Sonoma 50, whatever that looks yes, like. That's relevant absolutely. to me. Um, that's relevant to me. And, um, so you win that in 2016, you come back, you win it again in 2017. And both of those years you get your golden ticket. So in 2016, here you are just like, you're working now with Mario and, um, you, your goal is just to finish the Lake Sonoma 50 and then you end up taking the lead around mile 29 and you're feeling good and, um, you crush it. I think your time was like seven sixteen. Was that a huge surprise? <laughs> Which part of that? <laughs> like that, that now all of a sudden you're going to be running a hundred mile in um, just a few months. So I hadn't given the golden ticket too much thought or I didn't let myself dwell on that. And after the race, you know, you get all these questions immediately. Oh, yeah. Are you going to accept the golden ticket? Are you going to do Western States? And they give you, I think it's about, it's like a one-week grace period where you are given the ticket, which is really a link to register on Ultra Sign Up. I've got like, <laughs> but I, I have this feeling it's like the Willy Wonka, like yeah, you totally. open up the bar and the well, golden actually, ticket is year, in Well, actually, this year, they do have golden tickets now. Oh, oh she's going to go get the golden ticket. Is this your Black Canyon golden ticket? Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is cool. Oh, it is a gold. It's it actually very is, yeah. Willy Wonka. It is it came, very Willy Wonka. That's awesome. It came wrapped around a bar of chocolate. Oh, see? Somebody's getting it. That's so Western cool. Western States golden but ticket. It used to not be a piece of paper. It used to just be an email link that you would get. Oh, this is way more. I know. This, this is, is so cute. This is awesome. That's great. Still but comes with the email link because so you still have to have the ultra sign up well, link. The chocolate's gone. Chocolate's long gone. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was gone right after the race. Oh, we got to get a picture of that. So, um, yeah. So, they... You have about a week to decide whether or not you're going to accept your golden ticket. And some people are, you know, immediately, yes, I'm going to take the golden ticket. And some people want to think about it because either it came as a surprise that they finished so well in the race or they really need to think about whether they want to tackle a hundred miler. And I actually had said going into Lake Sonoma 20, in 2016 that I wasn't really interested in doing Western States, but then once you're actually presented with the opportunity, it becomes much more difficult to say no. Um, because it, first of all, you never know if you'll have another chance to get Cause it's a back into epic it. Opportunity. Um, because it's a race that is hard to get into, you know, whether it's through the lottery or through other means, um, you're not really guaranteed entry. Um, you have to finish in the top 10 the year before, or you have to have a good enough day to get a golden ticket or lucky enough in the lottery. Um, and I think that there's so much history and energy and almost mystique surrounding Western states that I just decided to go for it <laughs> and do it. And you did <laughs> See what it's all about. <laughs> and I think you came in 13th that year. So... I mean, you go into Lake Sonoma 2016 just wanting to finish because I think you had tried a 50 miler, but attempted, but you didn't finish. Um, and then, how do you, how do you and Mario get you ready for 100 miles? Or do you think that that his wheels were already turning, like he was already kind of preparing you, maybe um, under the radar without you knowing? <laughs> no, I think he was just preparing me for Lake Sonoma at yeah. the time. I don't think. <laughs> I don't think either of us wanted to think past yeah. Lake Sonoma. Um, 
And I think it sometimes, you know, it's one of those things where you just have a discussion of, hey, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. And whether you, you decide to do it or not, um, let's just get through Lake Sonoma and then take it from there you know, and then decide what you want to so do. how do you ramp up that quickly? Yeah, it's, du- it's double. Um, so Lake Sonoma is very close to Western states. You know, it's Lake Sonoma is always in April. It gives you, what, 10, ten weeks, weeks yeah. before Western states. Um, I think that it doesn't necessarily take a tremendous number of weeks to get ready for a 100-miler if you already have several years of consistent training under you. Right. If you were going from zero to 100 miles, that would be tough to do in 10 weeks. But, you know, by 2016, I'd been seriously training for eight years already. More than that, if you count like the first marathon I ever ran. So you had the engine. So, you know, you have a lot. uh, I truly believe that all your training is cumulative, even if you have breaks in between. Um, I, I know that nowadays it takes me a much shorter time to get ready for a race than it did in the past because I have, you know, 15 years of training to fall back on. It never truly goes away. Um, even if you take breaks or you have injuries, um, your body remembers, you have muscle memory, you have physiological adaptations that have occurred. So I think it wasn't, going to be down to fitness. I think it was always going to be down to just all of the other factors that come into play in a hundred miler, nutrition, mental training, um, hydration. And those are almost more important in a hundred miler than in other ultras, because all of those factors, you just have to have so much control throughout the entire race because any mistake you make early on is going to come and haunt you later. And I think so many things can go wrong because you're just out there for such a long time and you have to do everything right for such a long time that it's really hard. But you can also have the opportunity <laughs> to recover because you're yeah, out there for so can, long. So if so, exactly what you're talking about, can you pull yourself out yeah. with a switch in nutrition or, or a shift in mindset. Yes. Yeah. So there's always an opportunity to turn your day around if you're having a bad day. Um, I think that it, it's a challenge to always feel good during a hundred miler. I don't think anybody always feels like I felt great throughout the whole thing. You're always going to have moments when you feel low and moments when you feel high and it sort of becomes, how do you manage that? And how do you try to keep those moments as high as possible? (laughs) Even though you feel awful. (laughs) How do you, um, so how do you navigate the nutrition aspect of things when you Um, when you go that long like how can you wrap your brain or how can someone wrap their their mind around all that so i i think you just have to develop strategies for what are the fastest and most effective ways for you to keep ingesting calories while staying um while not getting nauseous or sick and you have to try a lot of different strategies and maybe adjust your strategies if certain things don't work because you so, are going to fail along the way there like yeah as you're I figuring mean, out your strategy it's so hot that for a lot of people you know the nutrition aspect and the calorie consumption aspect is very difficult um because your digestion and you know how your body works is just under so much stress Um, You're not only going 100 miles, but you're doing it in 100 degree weather that things that might work on a cooler day aren't necessarily going to work on the hot day. Um, So I think you have to fine tune a lot of things. And I think it plays well to people who can be very analytical and thoughtful and and like spreadsheets. (laughs) Did you have a spreadsheet for this? Oh, I definitely had spreadsheets for Western States. And it's okay, you don't have to give up your spreadsheets. Your relationship relationship to to them is probably a little bit more um, But that's where it comes in. You're you're flexible depending on the weather, whether it's hotter or cooler. Whether your fitness is, will you feel that day if you're topped off or not? And and always have that, that I guess, asterisks where you're like, oh, well, this time I'm going to stop at the aid station. I'm going to take a little bit more in because in this moment, 
I feel like I need that edge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you have your golden ticket for this year, and you'll be up in Lake Sonoma with us this weekend, which I'm excited about. It's a pretty stacked women's field and men's field. Um, 2017, you went to Western States, but you didn't finish, right? I think I heard that on the Billy Yang, like you kind of laid on the trail for a little (laughs) bit. So this year will be your second 100 miler, is that correct? This Western States. This Western States will be the third one that I'm starting. Right. But you're, yeah. Okay. So third 100 miler that you'll be starting. And um, so what did you learn from, what have you learned over the past two years that you'll be taking in this year? Uh, Be better about your electrolytes. Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm going to go to um, pretty much all liquid calories this year. I think... In 2017, especially, I fell behind on calories and electrolytes because I, like, after opening your 15th goo, I mean, really, you sort of get sick of it. You're like, I'm just tired of eating goo or opening the packages, and it feels like so much trouble. And so for Black Canyon this year, I did pretty much all liquid calories for most of the race, just kind of supplemented with some um, chews and gels along the way when I felt like I wanted a little bit of a change. Are you using primarily goo products? Yes. So were you using their Roctane? Yeah. Yeah. Roctane all the way. I've been been really digging digging the bang for your buck. And the grape flavor is what we've been dialing in. And the taste isn't overwhelming. Right, right. It's a pretty subtle flavor so I think that it works really well for the ultra long distance because you don't get flavor fatigue and you don't feel like it's sickly you know so you'll be taking most of your um, calories in liquid and then what have you learned like the mental piece about what's so important for going long whether that's Ironman half Ironman, whether that's a 5K, because I'm sure your 5K felt long, mm-hmm. um, your first one, and or they're running their first 100. What's, uh, what's the most important thing mentally that you've learned? Stay calm. <laughs> I was going to say, keep calm and carry on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I used to get really, not anxious, but just nervous and sort of hyped up about races like running through all these scenarios in my head about what could or could not happen um you know being very obsessive about some details and you know what I've started doing is leading up into important races or even training runs I watch um free solo with Alex Honnold because he is so eerily calm about everything like there's just no emotional attachment attachment and you're just like just detach the emotion and just execute you know I'm not Alex Honhold so I don't think I could ever achieve his immense level of detachment but I really dig the whole you know if you take your own anxiety, excitement, nerves out of it and just focus on the execution of, you know, stay calm. Whatever happens is going to happen. Problem solve along the way. Deal with the discomfort, but just keep going. Yeah. So what do you think is the most important piece in staying calm? I feel like I just will myself to be <laughs> do you go to your breath? So, do you go to the footstep? Do you go to um, the... I like to pay attention to my breath um, because that also tells you a lot about how you're feeling and what your effort level is at the time and whether it's too high or whether you can work a little bit harder. So paying attention to your breath. Um, I sing a lot of songs in my head um, that sort of keeps me on a beat with my footsteps as well. So you're, What's you have a little songs? rhythm. <laughs> Let's hear it. What's one of those songs? What's your go-to song? What's your go-to? We're going to wrap it up with your go-to song. Um, I go to a lot of Taylor Swift <laughs> or um, the Hamilton soundtrack. 
great. I like it. Awesome. Um, you know, the thing I love about Alex is, you know, he, to me, to me he's a master. Mm-hmm. So he's very meticulous about the, the spreadsheet aspect of his craft. And he's very meticulous about present moment awareness. And, um, and through that, I think he gains that calmness and is able to detach from the anxiety or whatever it is that, you know, for, and I guess I'm speaking more, I'm not going to speak for him. I'm going to speak for me. That present moment awareness is that place where it, we're not in the future anymore. We're just right where we are. And so that I love that he is so big in the world right now because he's showing us all what mastery is. And to our own degree, we're finding it ourselves. And so are you. So uh, I look forward to seeing you on Saturday and uh, follow you at Western States. And how can people follow you and, and get a hold of you? Um, so I'm on Instagram. Uh, my handle is YWangRuns. And that's like my main handle that people can follow. Cool. Yeah. I'm awesome. not really a Twitter person. <laughs> That's okay. You don't I kind of stalk other people and I'm just like, I don't need to write anything on Twitter right now. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck on Saturday. Oh, awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I'll see you out there.